this morning, uh, we're continuing in our uh, sermon series, The History of Redemption. And so this story of redemption is, is the full story since the very beginning of time through all of eternity. We have a hard time understanding like those kinds of, uh, of realities. A reality like eternity blows our minds. And, and that's okay. Like, here's why. Because God is the one who is eternal, and, he, and he's, he's made us into his image bearers. So he's given us uh, a heart for that, that, I, that longing for eternity. And yet, he, we don't have a conception of it. We see time as linear, and God sees time differently. But the, the cool thing about the story, the history of redemption, is that all of it, everything you can think of, is part of that story. From the very beginning, when there was nothing, and God spoke, and he formed out of the chaos, ex nihilo, he spoke into being creation, to the very end, which won't actually be an end because it's eternal, it'll just keep going, it will be his story. A story of his glory, a story of his holiness, a story of his love, and all of that is seen perfectly and most clearly in his son Jesus, the lamb that was slain. This morning we're looking at uh, Exodus 20. Probably we're all pretty familiar with it. Maybe we could name seven out of the ten commandments um, as a whole. Maybe we can get them all. That would be amazing. But really... What I want us to look at is, is not memorize the Ten Commandments, although that is edifying. I think it builds up. I think knowing those help us to know who God is. But I, today I want us to see that in the context of the story. Why does God give the Ten Commandments? What's the purpose of giving the law to a people that he knows are going are gonna to break the law and fall short of the law? Why does God do that? We're, as he's giving it to Moses, he knows Moses is, is not perfect. He knows that the people that are following Moses are not perfect. And yet, he gives this perfect law to them to hide in their heart and to follow. If you have one of the note sheets uh, for, for some of our, our youth, the, the Hebrew word Torah is a word that we're looking at. Torah means law. And when, whenever um, the Israelites would refer to the Torah, the law, sometimes they were talking about uh, a specific set of commandments. Sometimes they were talking about all five books, like the whole Pentateuch, which would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sometimes they were talking about just the, the, uh, the Ten Commandments. But, so today we're looking at the law as a whole. What has God given us? that points to his righteousness and his holiness. And why? Why has he done that? J.I. Packer says this. He says, Because Scripture calls God's Ten Commandments law, we assume they are like the law of the land, a formal code of do's and don'ts, restricting personal freedom for the sake of public order. But the comparison is wrong. Torah, Hebrew for law, means the sort of instruction a good parent gives his child. Proverbs 1.8 and 6.20 actually use Torah for parental teaching. Proverbs 1.8 says this, Hear, my son, your father's instructions, and forsake not your mother's teaching. When you and I hear law, we often think in terms of this, do's and don'ts. What should you do? What should you not do? What's the, what's the right punishment for doing or not doing those things? 
And so we, we kind of have this idea of, well, it's a, it's a restriction. And the reality is that God is giving us His law not to restrict us, but to bring us into right living, fullness of life. How do we get, get life and get it at its fullest without the brokenness, without the destruction that you and I cause because of our sinful nature? He gives us His law and says, hey, if you would walk in these ways, it's going to be good. It's going to be better than good. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be life-giving. It's going to be edifying. If you would do these things, you would see that. It's like a parent, just like J.I. Packer is saying. We, we're calling our children to walk in these ways. Now, it's pretty idealistic to say every time we instruct our children, that's what we're calling them to. There are times where we're just trying to get them to be quiet. Like That's, that's just an honest thing. But that, even that is sinful in us, right? And we can confess those things. Because really what we're called to is to show them the ways of life. So that they would flourish, so that they would love, so that they would know who God is. And then we have from our catechism that they would both glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That they would have joy. And so that's why God is giving us His law, so that you and I would have joy and fullness of life. One of the questions, though, is like, we can look at this from thousands of years later and say, well, what is, the, what is the purpose of the law? But really, what we want to see first and foremost is why did God give the law to the Israelites? Like, in that time, we need to be, be able to understand what He's giving them the law for before we extrapolate it 2,000 years to why we would have it today. First, let's think of, like, what was the understanding of the law by the Israelites. If you remember um, our time in the summer, we've spent some time in the Psalms. And the first Psalm actually talks very highly of the law of God. You would think that it would really press into the love of God and the mercy of God and the redemption of God, and it does all of those things. But first and foremost, it looks to the law. And it says in Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. These people that have been rescued and redeemed, they've been taken out of slavery and brought into the promised land, given a, a nation, given a king, and, and the king is, is uh, David is calling the people to delight in the law of the Lord. There's a joy that they have in a response of the salvation that they've received to walk in the righteousness that God is calling them to. They delight in it. You and I have a hard time with that. Maybe you don't, but I do. I have a hard time with delighting in rules and restrictions. Now, my children would say differently. They would say, Dad really delights in it and he puts a lot of them on us. However, I don't... I don't delight in that. Because that's the way that I'm seeing it, as rules and restrictions. But if I saw it for what it truly is, the law of the Lord as, as life-giving, as a calling to righteousness and holiness and beauty, then I would delight in it. So I'm praying that today, God would do a miraculous work in our hearts and minds, that we would see His law as beautiful. That we long to walk in it, not because it would be the thing that saves us, 
Look at the story. Look at where God is giving His law in the story. He's already saved them. He's already redeemed them. He's already brought them out of Egypt. And then He gives them the law, the covenant, that they're, they're supposed to walk in. But He's already done the saving work in their lives. And so I pray that God would even correct some of that in us. The thinking that we have to do these things to make Him happy. That we have to do these things to, to rescue ourselves. Because He's already rescued us. He's already saved. He's already saved the Israelites and He gives them His law. Here's why they love it. Psalm 19. Again, just praising the law of the Lord. It says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's, that's life giving. It's reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Praying that God would do that in us today. As we look at the Ten Commandments, as we look at the law that's given to Moses, that he would give us a, a, a longing, a desire, a delight in his law. But just expounding the narrative or pointing to very clear truths isn't, isn't what's going to change our hearts. We need the Spirit of God to do that. And so we ask Him together. So let's pray and ask God to do that. Lord, we want to be a people who delight in Your law because in delighting in Your law, we actually delight in You. We see Your character and Your beauty. We see the life that You are calling us to image to share, to participate in. So Lord, would you give us clarity today? God, would you speak to us that we may hear clearly your truth, that that truth would not just uh, fall on ears in vain, but it would actually do a, a heart-shaping, a transformation, and a conforming to your image and your will so that um, we would be reflections of you to each other and to the world. That's what you've called your people to do from the very beginning. To image you to those who do not know you and to those who do. So Lord, would you do that in us today? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your beauty, your goodness, your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to go back and, and just really press into this idea that God has delivered before He gives the law. It's important. It's important to know that God has done a saving work in you before He would call you into uh, re to respond. Like God is the one who initiates. It says um, in the Unfolding Grace, which is a, a series of readings through the, the Bible, and it's kind of a, a devotional reading, it talks about these, these couple chapters, and it just, it, I thought it was succinct and clear, so I just want to read this for you. 
It says, Israel's journey is difficult after crossing the sea, not because of enemies like the Egyptians, but because of their own ungrateful and unbelieving hearts. They grumble against the Lord when they are hungry and thirsty, even desiring to return to Egypt. Although they are freed from physical slavery, they require a deeper liberation of their hearts. At Mount Sinai, they enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord. The storyline of Exodus to this point teaches a critical lesson about the relationship between God's grace and His commands. God does not say to the enslaved Israelites, if you obey my commandments, I will rescue you. Just the opposite. He first rescues them by grace, then teaches them how to respond. First, gracious acceptance, then gracious guidance. It is God's heartfelt and gracious acceptance alone that can liberate the heart to love Him. God's commands are also a gift. They show Israel how to fulfill its role as a kingdom of priests in the world. They show Israel how to live as a new, commun- new humanity with a culture of love. They are to be a new Adam representing God and reflecting His character in the world. Man, that's, that's freeing right there. I hope that you're, you're getting some of that already this morning. Like the freedom that you have because Christ has delivered you before he would call you to do anything on his behalf. Like, there's nothing that, that you need to do for rescue. You have been rescued. I have been rescued. Everything that I do after that rescue is a response out of gratitude for the rescue that I've received. But then God is so gracious and kind that he shows me how to respond. He shows me how to love well. He shows me how to give Him glory that He's due in right relationship for the rescue that I've received. He's so kind. Alright, to set the tone for where we're at, you can just read these, um, these Ten Commandments as a list of rules. And we, we kind of did that a little bit. We get a little bit of it at the end of the narrative. But let's back up a little bit so that we're in chapter 19. Because the way God gives these commands is crazy. Crazy awesome. Crazy scary. Like, it's, it's amazing. Verse 16 of chapter 19. This has been going on for a little bit, so we're still jumping in a little bit. But hopefully you can go back and read this week. That's your homework. Go back and read. See the context that the Ten Commandments are given in. But verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. I don't know what would be stranger if, if Moses, that he did go up or if he didn't go up because either way there's so much power awesomeness like just being displayed in the way that God is doing this I'd be so scared to go up but I would be even more scared not to do what God told me to do 
And so Moses responds and he goes up and, he's, and he goes to the Lord. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. <clears throat> and then we jump into this list of rules. What, what we often think of as, if we just did those ten commandments, life would be better. We treat it as a checklist. But in the context of the story, it's not a checklist. In the context of the story, God is displaying His power and His glory to, to His people. And in that display of His power and His glory, He gives them Himself. He reveals Himself in thunder and in lightning and in fire, but also in what He gives them, which is His commandments. He's pointing to His righteousness. He's pointing to His holiness, that He is not like us. In the context of the narrative, we begin to see that this is more than just a checklist. This is more than ten rules that would lead to a, a healthy and better life. There's something in this that is representing God Himself. Yahweh displays His power, and the Lord gives us His righteousness in the law. He gives His covenant, His promise to His possession. There's an understanding from the very beginning that He would be our God and we would be His people. And now He's calling us into covenant relationship. What do His people look like? How do His people act? How do those that have been redeemed and saved live in such a way that He would be reflected, that He would be imaged to the world around them? And then He goes and gives the commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, if you remember, um, there's two tablets of stone that, we, that Scripture says the, the commandments were written on, but first they were given by God's speaking. Given by His speaking in the thunder and in the lightning, in the fire and the earthquakes. You and I might have the Ten Commandments written on a wall, maybe framed nicely and pretty, Maybe we should draw around that wall like this huge mural of the fire and the thunder and the smoke and like to, to really begin to understand that this is not just uh, a simple way that we should live, but it is God Himself giving Himself to us to display His holiness, His goodness, the law. These Ten Commandments, sometimes called the Decalogue, they're, they're a summary what we're going to find is He gives these ten commandments, and then He gives some more commandments, and then He gives some more commandments until eventually there's, there's 613 commandments that are given in the Torah, in the law. But these ten commandments would sum up all of those commandments. If you follow these ten commandments, you're going to walk in the righteousness that God is calling us to walk in. And so I want to look at these commandments 
These, you could divide it into two sections. The first four really give us uh, an idea about our relationship to God. Who is God? And then how do we respond to Him? And then commandments 5 through 10 give us uh, a way of being, a way of reflecting God's image in the way that we respond and relate to one another. And so if we divide them into those two things, it, it can be helpful. The, this idea of how are we to image God as His redeemed people. Commandment number one, have no other gods. Have no other one that you would worship, that you would devote your life to, except God Himself, Yahweh, the one who is speaking in thunder. The one who's Revealing himself in, in fire and lightning and earthquake. That God says, don't have any other gods besides me. And he's doing it in a way that you would know that he's God and no one else is. The display of his glory that's taking place. And then you hear, you shall have no other gods before me. That's different from a mild suggestion of you shouldn't have another God besides Yahweh. Because God is calling us to Him. Says that He is a jealous God. That He's not going to allow you to have any other affection that's greater than your affection for Him. Have no other gods. Number two, do not create any images or idols. There should be no created thing. Verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water of under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Interesting that verse 3 is so short and verse 4 is so long, so detailed. I think that it's because we have a tendency to, to not necessarily have another God, but we're going to have these other things that, that are lower than God, but we're still going to really dedicate a lot of our life to them. We're going to worship these idols, but we're not necessarily going to call it Worshiping another God, we're just going to say that these other things, you need them, you have to have them, or, or that's just part of life. And yet, they consume us often. And so, God is very detailed in saying, listen, you're not going to worship any of these things, any of these created things, because you have the Creator to worship. You have the One who has made everything. Why would you need an image or an idol of me? Also, do not create any images or idols because God has already created an image of Himself. Who has He created in His image? You and I. We're to be those image bearers. We don't need to make idols that would be reflections of Him. You and I are the image bearers. We're supposed to be pointing people to Jesus with our lives in the way that we live and move and have our being, like all of those things, the fullness of everything that we do should be a reflection of who God is. That's why we were created. That's why Adam and Eve were created. 
Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You and I, called to be image bearers. So don't make any other images. Don't make any other idols. Verse 3, or sorry, commandment number 3, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This can be um, turned into just, hey, don't use the Lord's name when you're swearing. Um, don't, and that's both cursing or like making a promise and saying and, and declaring that, you know, uh, making the promise on God. So both those ways would be ways of swearing. I think there's more to it than that. I think there's this idea both of, yes, don't, don't take the Lord's name lightly, the name that he speaks to Moses from the burning bush, right? the name that in his kindness he has given to us to be his people, to know him. We don't want to take that lightly. We don't want to take it in vain. But at the same time, I think there's also, the, it ties into to the first, second commandment that says, that, hey, you're an image bearer. You have the name of God upon you as his image bearer. Don't take that in vain. Don't take that lightly. Remember who you are and who you've been created to be. What is the purpose of your life? Why did God make us? Why did God redeem this particular people to Himself so that they would be image bearers? As they go into the promised land, as they meet other nations and other peoples, that they would reflect God's glory to them. And that didn't end in the Old Testament. That's what we are called to do. Today, you and I, as having the name that is above all names placed upon us, as Christians, Christ-like, you and I bear that name. We don't want to bear it in vain. We want God to do everything that He wants to do in and to and through us. good news is He's going to do that. Sometimes He's going to do it without us even knowing it. And I want to be one of those people that know, like, God, you're doing this thing. And it's sweet. It's good. Thank you, God. So do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, or do not vainly image him. The fourth commandment remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. <clears throat> it's another way that we image God. We image God both in our labor and in our rest. He set that example for us in the garden, even though he doesn't need rest. He did that so that we would know, hey, you, you labor and then you rest, and this day is a dedicated day where you will worship and understand and serve me. We image him in our rest. And again, he expounds on it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You and I, created in His image to bear His name, we work 
in His name, we rest in His name. We're called to reflect Him to the world. So, these first four really have, have a lot to do with our relationship with who God is and who He's called us to be and how do we bear His image to the world. And then these next six teach us how to reflect God in our relationships with others. How do we bear the image of God in our relationship to one another? It's not surprising that the first relationship is our first relationship. When you are born, you are born to a father and a mother. You're born. Our first relationship, honor your father and your mother. There's a promise that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Sir, giving honor. And to be honest, it's not even saying honor that's due. So for some of us, that frees us to honor, not because our parents are, are, are worthy of it, but because we're being obedient and we're reflecting God as His image bearer, walking in a righteousness that He's calling us to. So our first relationship is to honor your father and your mother. We're going to move quickly through these. And listen, I, I'm not moving through them quickly because of familiar. Some of us because of familiarity. And not that we would take them lightly, but many of us know them. But I, I want us to know them in the context of why God is giving them. He says, you should not murder. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then he goes on to say, or anything else that your neighbor may own. All of these are in the context of relationship. To murder, there has to be another person. To commit adultery, there needs to be another person. There's no stealing. right? These are all required two people. And so God is giving Himself and He's saying, listen, to image me, to reflect me rightly, here's how you treat others. And while the, the fifth commandment is specific in mother and father, the rest of them are not specific. They don't talk about, hey, don't steal from people you like. Or don't murder good people. They're, they're in the context of, like, all of humanity, you relate in this way. You don't murder, you don't commit adultery, you don't steal, you don't bear false witness, you don't covet. Why? Why does it matter the way that we treat people? Why does it matter the compassion that we have for one another? Why does it matter that if we're, if we're angry, if we're frustrated, you know, and, and then Jesus comes and he talks about, hey, anger being the same thing as murder. Like if you've committed, if you have anger in your heart, it's the same as if you would commit murder. Why is that so important? The way that we live and the way that we interact with one another, it goes back to the first thing. Because the way that you and I live reflects who God is. We're image bearers. That comes with some weight to it. But it also comes with some freedom. Like, no, the more that I know who God is, the more that I will rightly image Him and reflect Him to a world that needs to see Him. This is the summary of the law. We have Jesus summarizing the law. He says that you can summarize it in two things. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look, all of these ten commandments are summed up in those two commandments. And if you look, all 613 other commandments are summed up in those two commandments. We've talked about this before, and we're like, man, that's good. Two commandments I could probably do. I can't do 613, but I could probably do two. But the reality is that those two would require all 613 other ones to be fulfilled too. To do them fully, to do them rightly. And that leaves you and I in a place where we, we realize, man, I can't do that. I can't fulfill the law of God. I can't rightly image Him to a world that needs to see Him. I can't even image Him in my household to a household that needs to see Him. And so what we have is we have this law that points to our great need for one who would come and rightly image God. One who would come who was a better Adam. And God gives us the law knowing that we're not going to be able to fulfill the law. Knowing that He's going to send His Son to walk perfect righteousness. To one who would come and who would love the Lord as God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others more than Himself. He would fulfill the law. This is the purpose of the law in the history of redemption. Kevin DeYoung says the law was a response to redemption, not a cause of it. In one sense, the law shows us our sin and leads us to the gospel. But in another sense, law ought to follow the gospel just as the giving of the Decalogue followed salvation from Egypt. We obey God's words not because we cower under the threat of judgment, but because we stand confidently with our deliverer and gladly accept his good rule for our life. See, God knew from the very beginning that you and I were not going to be able to do this, but there's There's beautiful promise throughout all of Scripture. The the Jewish people who took hold of the law and said, man, that's beautiful, that's good, I want that. I want to walk in that way so that I rightly reflect my God. They're even warring and struggling and battling with this. And so God gave them sacrifices that they would be able to make to atone for their sins. The Day of Atonement, we read about also, like the, the, the high priest would go and he would make atonement for where they had not reflected the glory of God to each other and to those around them. And that atonement was pointing to the one who would come, who would ultimately atone for their sins. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel for after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me for the, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God doesn't just give us the law externally. 
He gives us a promise that He's going to write that law on our hearts. He's going to make it our desire. He's going to make it what gives us life, our delight. He's going to do that by His Spirit. And then we will know that He is God. And He will be our God and and we will be His people. Like that's, That's the promise that we have. How does that happen? It happens in Jesus. It doesn't happen by the Israelites striving harder or even having their own land where where all the rules match with that rule. We think that, man, if we would just have better rules in this country, we'd be a better people. No, we need a better Savior. We need one who has walked this perfectly. There's a call to be holy that you and I cannot meet. It's not just an Old Testament call. In the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, 1, 14-16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We already sang it this morning, too. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy, worthy, worthy to receive all praise. All that's true. It's also true that you and I have been called to reflect that holiness and that we've failed to do it. But what we rest on, what we run to is the promise of the Gospel that we have a Savior who has come and who has rightly reflected. Because He's both God and man. Jesus' Son. The One who has come to fulfill the law. Matthew 5.17 Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've come to walk in that right relationship with God and that right relationship with others. And then he does. He loves completely. All the way to the point of death. Even death on a cross. You see, we go from ten... Commandments to 613 commandments to two commandments, and yet you and I cannot fulfill those commandments. Jesus has come, and He has fulfilled those commandments. And so today, you and I get to, by faith, take hold of what Jesus has done. Because after this, there's, a, uh, there's promises that God makes, covenant promises with His people, co- promises of blessing and promises of curse. Now, we like to read over those real quick, get through them, but the reality is that there's a judgment against those who would not reflect Him rightly. Which we just said is all of us. And so all of us stand under the judgment of God that we have not, despite His goodness, despite His rescue, despite what He has done, you and I do not reflect Him rightly either in our relationship to Him or in our relationship to others. So what we need is we need a Savior, we need a Redeemer, we need a Messiah who has been promised and who has come in the person of Jesus. This is the good news of the Gospel. That in Jesus, God keeps covenant faithfulness with us. You see, if Jesus didn't come and if He didn't die and if He didn't bear the curse that you and I deserve on the tree, then God would not be keeping His covenant. He wouldn't be keeping His promise, but Jesus did bear that. He did bear the punishment that you and I deserve all the way to the cross. At the cross, 
He was rejected. At the cross, He died. A death that He did not deserve for you and for me. That's hard. Like That's weighty. There's, there's a heaviness that comes with that. But there's also a, a beauty that says no. But that means that God is holy. The one who promised and the one who made covenant with the people, He kept that covenant because He punished sin. And He did it in His Son, Jesus. So in Jesus, God keeps covenant faithfulness with us. And then in Jesus, we keep covenant faithfulness with God. Because not only was our sin and shame put on Jesus on the cross that He died for and He paid for, but in His resurrection, He gives you and I a life and a righteousness. His righteousness that we get to walk in. We get to rightly reflect God. Be image bearers of Him to a dying world that needs to see Him. You and I, because of the work of Jesus, get to keep covenant with God. We get to walk in faithfulness because of what He has done. This is the good news of the Gospel. This is why we put our faith in Jesus. Because He both takes the curse and pours out the blessing upon us. That you and I get to walk in righteousness and reflect rightly a good and holy God. This is what the law is calling us to. We've been saved. We've been redeemed. The the Israelites are saved and brought out of Egypt. And then they're told to live in this way. So you're living in this way. My living in this way is not what determines our salvation. We've already been saved. How are we going to live in a way that would give God glory? That is the purpose of the law. It's also what God does by His Holy Spirit in us. Both the law and the Holy Spirit work in us to image God. To reflect Him. To display Him. Romans 8, 1-4 through There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that again because some of us need to hear it like every day, every minute of every day. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you and I have taken hold of Christ today, if He's taken hold of us, and we've seen it, then that means that His Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. God Himself, not Not the law, not not this thing that's given to us that would help us reflect Him, but God Himself has been put inside of you and I to to shine out. Not to reflect, like God is in us showing Himself to a dying world that needs to see. What does it look like to live in a way that is beautiful, in a way that is right, in a way that is holy, in a way that is just, all of it reflecting All of it displaying God's glory. The Holy Spirit dwells in us so that we would not walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This Spirit that's inside of us is the seal of His promise that He is our God and we are His people. Today, if you have any any of the righteousness of Christ being worked out in you, rejoice. Like, rejoice 
so much. I don't know how to say it any more than that. Like you should just be so full of joy because that means that God has saved you and rescued you and he is working out his salvation in you and he's displaying his glory in you. Who are we that he is mindful of us, much less that he would use us to display himself? He's so kind. This is the seal that he is our God and we are his people. It's what we take hold of by faith today. That Christ has purchased for us something that you and I could not fulfill in obedience to the law. He has fulfilled the law completely. And the law shows us what does it look like to walk in right relationship with God and with each other. And then we look at Jesus and his life and we're like, that's what the law looks like when it's played out perfectly. And then he gives us a spirit to apply that righteousness to our lives and we get to go and do it today. You and I. To display his glory. This morning if you're here and, and you're saying, I, I don't know if that's me. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. We're glad that you're here. We would love to, to pray with you. We would love to, to walk you through more of that. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? Maybe, we, maybe your understanding of the gospel. How did Jesus actually come and how does his death have anything to do with me? We would love to, to walk through that with you and encourage you in that. Maybe today you're saying, man, my life, I, I believe that those things are true. And yet my life is so full of, of, of sin, my glory, my anger towards other people. All of my relationships are broken. We would want to pray and just say, God, would you, would you heal? Would you restore? Would you make this thing beautiful? Because that's what you're doing. And so we don't want to just throw this out there and then say, okay, that's great, we, we're done. No, we get, to do, we get to wrestle with all of this together. Like, how is this true in our lives? How is this being displayed? How am I displaying God's glory? How is the Spirit working these things out in me? We get to do that as a people together. But the first thing we do is we take hold of by faith that God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to rescue us, to save us. Save us from our unrighteousness and to put his righteousness in us. Today, if that's, you believe that that's taking place in your life, man, rejoice. Rejoice. Repent where you've, where you've forgotten that. Remember it to be true and then rejoice. And then go and reflect, like be that display that God has called us to be. Not in your own strength, not in the strength of the flesh, but be, by the power of the Spirit that's working in us. And we get to experience life and beauty and joy together as the body of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. We thank you for the person of Jesus. We thank you for the law. <laughs> God, I pray that we would pray prayers like the psalmist. And we'd say, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. God, I thank you that you've shown us what, it, what the law fulfilled looks like in your son. I thank you that you've not only shown us, but today if by faith we, we said, we, I am in Christ, 
What he did on the cross was for me, Lord, that today you are displaying your righteousness in us because your spirit is in us. Lord, I pray for those that are are wrestling with this truth. Pray that you would speak to them. That today would be the day of salvation for them. That today would be the day where they experience joy and a fullness of joy. That they too would rejoice. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts even now, Lord, of uh, the people that you've put in our lives that need to hear this good news. God, and that we would go and we would both display and share, that we would proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The only one who can work this beautiful way of living out in, in his people. But would you do that in us today? Not for our glory, but for your glory, for your name. That you would be exalted and worshipped. We ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.